Hey, welcome to the Money Morning Podcast. My name is Lachlan Tierney. I write for Money Morning and I also do Exponential Stock Investor. But today's focus is on gold. I have a seriously, seriously bright gold expert on today. His name is Tacoa Da Silva. I've got a lot of admiration for the style of communicating important information about gold. He used to run a popular website called Bull Market Thinking. And he, he was also working for Global Resources as an executive director. I think you'll find this really interesting. And to give you a bit of context, I've got Brian Chu on today as well. He does Rockstock Insider and Goldstock Pro. I'm very excited to have this chat. Brian, how's it going there? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks, Lockie. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to this interview. Well, we've got a heap of good gold content for people today. Let's get stuck into gold, Brian. Yep, let's do it. So, Takola, can you share with us your experience in the uh, seven years at Spot, um, Resource, Spot Global Resources and including um, some of your most interesting transactions um, in, that, in that period? Sure, yes. Well, uh, just for context to the experience, uh, very wonderful educational experience. And um, over the course of that seven years, I, I probably sat through um, anywhere from, it might, it might sound like a lot, but anywhere from 500 to maybe 750 presentations by resource companies, uh, most of them juniors, exploration development stage companies. And um, so that it was a very educational experience to do that. And I played a role in uh, probably about 100 private placements. Um, so super educational. Uh, it, uh, as a specialist natural resource firm, it's a, a wonderful place to learn about the natural resource sector, uh, that firm. So uh, some of my most memorable uh, transactions that I experienced, I would say were uh, open market to like open market deals. Some people re could refer to as the secondary market, and that is just the the open stock market where you can buy or sell shares at any at any time. Although I saw a lot of interesting situations that um, came up by private placement, it was the a couple open market situations that really stood out, and. Uh, a couple that come to mind are uh, one company called Corona Gold, uh, another company called First Mining Finance, which today uh, has a different entity name, and uh, as well as a company called Ivanhoe Mines. And so I, I, I had a wonderful experience with each of these three issues. And uh, so going back to Corona Gold, this was an issue that um, I'm not sure if I had um, had the opportunity to have any writings on this issue cross your desk, Brian, back in the early days of 2013 and 14. But this was a company that, you know, I was uh, fishing through the annual report of Dundee Corp, which is a Toronto-based uh, natural resource and a merchant banking group. And I was fishing through their annual report, trying to find uh, good leads for investment opportunities, other companies that I could buy shares in and, and such. And I, I came across one that they had, had a very large ownership uh, percentage in, and that was an entity called Corona Gold. Uh, so then I pulled up the re annual report of Corona Gold, and um, I found that you know they had about 10 and a half, 11 million in cash, we'll say Canadian dollars, 
And then they also had a stock portfolio uh, that was worth about uh, 11 million Canadian. That was measured against a market cap that was about, I think about 10 and a half, maybe 11 million Canadian. So um, when I looked into the company a little bit more, I, I found that they, they weren't very active in terms of uh, any uh, exploration or projects or anything like that. It was just uh, sort of a quiet, dormant uh, shell company that occasionally engaged in, in private placements in other companies. And um, so that was my introduction to the term net-net or a cash box. Uh, so a resource cash box is just a little entity that, uh, that some uh, specialist firms, let's say a natural resource firm, someone um, deeply entrenched in the sector might have a few of these uh, entities on tap that they could use at any time to do uh, transactions with. So a cash box is uh, sort of a jargon term used to describe one of these entities that is already publicly listed with cash, with some other kind of asset that just kind of sits dormant. And so, uh, and, and that's also, um, or that uh, leads me uh, also to mention net net too, because um, when you look at the market cap uh, you know, of a company in that situation, what you can do is you can take a look at the balance sheet. And the, you know, the balance sheet is where they show the assets and the liabilities. Uh, and I, I was uh, just new to that exercise at that time, but I took a look at the balance sheet and I looked at the cash and the liabilities, I subtracted the liabilities. And then when you subtract uh, the market cap from that, uh, net cash, that net cash balance that remains, you have um, what is a uh, net cash balance uh, that the shareholders uh, own. Then if you divide that by the outstanding number of shares that exist for the company, you can get an idea of how much cash, net cash per share exists. And if that amount is higher than the share price, you know, that it could be an interesting situation to look closer into. So, uh, so I, I got involved there with Corona Gold and it, it was a very sleepy experience for about two years. Nothing happened. I talked to a couple of people about it and they said, <laughs> you know, and this is what, all, what most people say when you have neglected situations is they say, uh, well, you know, uh, nobody cares about it. It's a forgotten story. This can go wrong. That can go wrong. Even when the mathematical setup is really attractive. And, um, I remember someone posing the question of, well, they have all that cash. What are they going to do with the cash? They're probably going to spend it on something stupid. So that was the type of sentiment that I was uh, um, encountering. But uh, I stuck with it. And what happened later on was um, a consortium of companies got together and announced uh, a five-way combination. And uh, it was Corona Gold and um, a handful of other companies, and uh, the Corona Gold shareholders enjoyed a, a nice takeover premium. And um, it, it, this uh, also brings to mind first mining finance when I suggest that uh, back in 2014, 15, and early 2016 in the, in the natural resource market, um, when there were uh, M&As happening, there were pretty big gaps available that could be exploited uh, as uh, arbitrage opportunities uh, because you'd have an, an acquiring company make an announcement of a takeover and then the acquiree might have a very 
small bump in price, but there would be a big gap between what the transaction price would be and uh, what the trading price would be for the acquiree company. And a person could say, well, the marketplace is very skeptical that a transaction is going to take place. They think it's not going to take place. But um, in a marketplace when you have few participants and poor sentiment and uh, cynicism, um, those gaps can be quite large. And I remember that uh, uh, Corona Gold at that time, it, it still had something like a, a gosh, probably a 30% arbitrage gap that could be captured. So I, I remember uh, participating in it that way as well. And and then that it became Oban Mining after the transaction closed. And then Oban Mining became Osisco Mining. And uh, Osisco Mining is uh, still around today with a, you know, a larger portfolio and uh, development stage assets and such in uh, Canada. So that's one transaction that comes to mind. And it was fun for me because it was so educational. And I learned for the first time uh, that process of, you know, what is a cash box, a resource cash box? What is a net net? And, and then to actually do it and put it into practice was very nice. Um, another situation comes to mind, and it, 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 that is playing a role in the uh, first mining finance, uh, the pre-IPO uh, private placement uh, that they had. And I think this was January or February of 2015. And so their intent with that vehicle was to uh, become a consolidator of gold development stage projects, uh, become a bank, if you will, of uh, lots of gold ounces in the ground. I re remember that placement did not include a warrant. It was just a straight you know, uh, single common share. So uh, that wasn't very remarkable that the terms of the private placement didn't you know, didn't really stand out. But what was remarkable for me in the experience was the uh, was the following year and a half uh, of uh, participating in that entity, and that was they went on a real shopping spree. Uh, they did probably six or seven acquisitions in uh, I think two thousand and sixteen alone. And on nearly every single one of these acquisitions of a public entity, there were these big arbitrage gaps that you could capture. So I remember talking to people at the time that you know were long first mining finance shares. They would announce uh, their next acquisition, and the uh, share price, uh, the uh, premiums that were, were offered were anywhere from thirty to sixty percent. Um, but the uh, in, oftentimes the share price response of the acquiree company would only be a, a few percentage points. So it might move up 5% when there is actually a 50 or 60% premium that was offered. So a person could continuously take their first mining finance shares uh, after, you know, I'm leaving tax consequences out of this statement, but they could repeatedly take their first mining finance shares uh, and after each acquisition announcement, sell them out and use the same funds to purchase the uh, equivalent dollar amount of shares of the acquiree company, wait till the close, uh, receive a larger number of first mining finance shares back, you know, post close and just keep rinse, wash, repeat this process over and over. And I saw a number of people do that and it was, it was uh, uh, quite enjoyable. Um, and there's also a book. If anybody wants to look it up, uh, there's a book that talks about M&A and arbitrage. Uh, it's a book that uh, I think it's called the Warren Buffett, uh, the Warren Buffett and the Art of Stock Arbitrage, written by Mary Buffett. 
it's a very simple book, uh, but it's a great foundation if someone wants to learn about that practice uh, for the first time. So uh, a third transaction that comes to mind that uh, uh, was very educational for me was watching the Ivanhoe Mines experience of how they went through a real awful bear market uh, for the three, four years leading up to uh, 2015. And uh, they had a bottom in, in, in their share price in January of 2016. And uh, I remember talking about it with my you know, former boss at, at the time, a mentor, uh, Mr. Ripple, and uh, remarking about how they were in a net-net uh, situation that company as well. Um, the share price of the company was fluctuating between 50 to 65 cents Canadian, and they had something around 70 to 75 cents Canadian per share uh, net cash in the bank in their corporate treasury. So what you would get by buying that company was a discount, a slight discount to the cash and all three of their world-class projects uh, covering platinum, uh, zinc, and, and of course their ocean of copper in the DRC, you would get all those projects for free within the valuation. And it was so funny. I, I remember talking with people about it at the time and um, as an indication of sentiment at the period, people, they, they would say, well, you know, um, I'm, I'm, I'm just not bullish on copper at the moment, you know, or I don't like Africa. And I, and I would think to myself after, you know, talking with people that uh, to use uh, a, um, an objection, such as you don't like the country very much where the, where the company or the asset is located in is, is a, a very unique objection because it, it almost implies that the person that you have to move there and live there in order to invest there. That was what was going through my mind. But what can you say? That type of sentiment just accompanies those periods of time. And, um, you know, fast forward to today and the price of that stock, uh, Ivanhoe Mines is, gosh, north of $9 Canadian per share. So that's uh, almost a 20-fold um, increase in price for that one. And Corona going into Oban, going into Osisco did fairly well too. And uh, that entity that First Mining Finance converted into, I think called First Mining Gold, I think that one has done fairly well over time too. So uh, those are a couple uh, of my favorite transactions that I experienced. And uh, they were uh, mostly open market situations as opposed to the, you know, private placement uh, situation. Hey, can I step in and ask you a question to Koa? Um... I think that's really interesting, that sort of net-net valuation metric you mentioned. Uh, for example, I focus on small caps quite a bit, uh, some in the some in the commodities uh, area, but what I often do is look at cash balance sort of relative to where that company is at its life cycle. Um, and that's particularly useful for growth or tech companies, I've found. But I was hoping you could tell us a bit more about the net-net system that you use? Because I know Brian is really into uh, valuation metrics when he approaches gold stocks. Gosh, you know, after I had that experience, I was thinking to myself, I, I, I want more of these. After I had that experience with Corona Gold, and I thought, well, how am I going to find these? And I did it probably the, the dumb way, the hard way at first, which was I went on to CDAR, which you guys 
you may know it's uh, in the U.S. They have a system called EDGAR, in Canada they have a system called CDAR, where it's a just a filing system where all the publicly listed companies will submit their uh, all their public uh, announcements, their quarterlies, their annual reports. And I started going through there one at a time to every single listed company, their financial statement, pulling up their uh, uh, balance sheet and just doing the quick calculation on, uh, you know, on paper or, or with a calculator. That was the hard way. And I thought that was, gosh, I was so naive to think that that's the only way to do it. Uh, because as you guys probably know, you have screening systems now um, that, 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 that can uh, that can do that. But so that's what I did. I probably did that a couple thousand times, embarrassingly enough. Um, and I came across one or two, but they didn't have, I found that what was more attractive was when you found a net net situation where the cash balance was enormously large, because if you have a net net situation where let's say the market cap of a company of an exploration company is 3 million and they've got a net, uh, a net cash balance of 5 million. As you guys know, in the corporate world, that cash disappears in a flash. It just, especially if they're an active exploration or development stage company, it, it can't even really be relied on it because that might be one or two years worth of uh, operating funds. So it has to be a large uh, amount of cash. And so I discovered um, that uh, you can use a couple screening uh, systems such as Bloomberg Terminal or Thompson Icon. And uh, you can set up your parameters of, say, you know, looking for a company that has a, you know, a market cap of, uh, or let's just say, uh, a cash balance of uh, 20 million or more within a specific sector, let's say metals and mining. Uh, and then, so cash balance of 20 million or more with a market cap of, let's just say, 50 million or less. And you hit enter, and that'll give you a prospecting list of probably, uh, well, these days, I don't know, because it's been a while since I've run these, but you'll get a prospecting list of maybe 30, 40, or 50 companies. And then you just go through them one at a time slowly, and you'll come across the odd situation where, uh, and I can go on if, uh, if you'd like, where this led me into running screens on other countries around the world, which is what led me to emerging market regions. Uh, but uh, that's, that can be a, 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 an efficient way to do it. Does that answer wow. the question? Brian, do you want to jump in? Yeah, yeah. Um, yes, that actually did answer the um, question quite well, I think. And um, what, I, what I liked um, was that, Takoa, you actually went through these companies uh, in your early stages by hand. I think there is nothing that can substitute uh, getting a screen, like getting, getting a program to do the screen for the companies because... Um, it is when you're pouring through some of these financial statements that you start picking up subtle details about whether a company is worth investing in or not. And a screener may actually kind of skip through that. And once you develop that experience, which you certainly have, then using these screens um, might save you a bit of time. I personally have a um, gold producer database where I, pay it, where I actually keep accounts of um, the financials, the resources, and the production uh, metrics, and I actually hand collect those. There's about 25, 26, 30 companies in my database, and um, spanning back about 2012. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's actually something which um, I think is very good practice for someone who's serious about the markets. Now, going back to what you um, talked about in those transactions, your favorite transactions. 
I noticed that most of them were in 2014, 2015, uh, in, in the market where it was starting to pick up. And fast forward now, you can see that um, we had another rally in the price of gold in the last two years. And, uh, and the last 12 months have been, you could say, a little punishing for um, those who just jumped in um, in, the, in that rally of 2019, hoping that this was going to go a long way. What types of opportunities do you now see in the mining industry, especially in gold, um, and which regions would you consider best value? Um, is it similar to your experience when you first started um, at Sprott Global Resources? Well, Brian, that's a wonderful question. And I, <laughs> I feel like I might uh, be a little, of a, let, a little bit of a letdown uh, to this. Uh, to this question to you and possibly the audience. And that is that um, I've been led to a different area these days based on my experiences and having run these screens uh, what, so many times uh, over the years from 2015 up until the present. And in thinking about us having this conversation, I, I, I thought, you know, how would I characterize or uh, in chronological order, the years from 2015 up until the present, because the most transactional fun I had was really during that bear market period of 2015 and 16, because you get these situations that come up that 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 people, things uh, are so good that people have a hard time believing you. Uh, and so you feel like, uh, well, you're a kid in a candy store, so to speak, and nobody cares, and you feel like you're sort of the only one. We'll have those times again. I just don't know when. Um, but what I noticed was that uh, as each year went by from 2016 to the present, uh, there were new waves of investors coming into the sector. The newsletter writers uh, played, I think, a very good role in terms of uh, promoting and uh, you know, marketing uh, the sector. And it... Uh, Every time we had a little bit of a pickup in price, I remember observing signs of groups of new people, uh, many of which had never invested in stocks before, starting with metals mining, gold mining, uh, you know, as a uh, as a starting platform, which is a pretty unique way to do it. So, um, okay, uh, from 2016 into 17, as the sector started to really recover, I was running these little net net screens, and they were getting smaller and smaller and and these situations were disappearing. And I thought to myself, well, wait a second, you know, how, how can I find more of these? And so uh, I, I opened up my search criteria a bit to include other countries. And um, so, you know, I started looking at Asia. I looked at Australia, of, of course, the European countries. And it, places like, uh, I started changing my search criteria a little bit and exploring ideas such as uh, big, strong, mature companies that might be selling for a fraction of the uh, price to book ratio, or let's say 20 to 30 cents on the dollar when you look at price to book. That's a different way of looking at uh, uh, discounting value um, as that price to book ratio is not always applicable with, you know, for resource companies because they're just a little bit of a, uh, of a different animal. But so I got to looking at that area. Okay. I, you know, so I thought, well, wait a second, you know, um, I read a wonderful book called Snowball 
uh, talking about Warren Buffett. I think it was Alice Troder who wrote that book. And Warren Buffett in that book um, told the story, I think to the author, where he said, you know, uh, I purchased uh, back in some decades ago, a basket of South Korean stocks that were trading at between two to four times earnings, two to four times PE ratio, plus they were also selling at a discount to cash, which is just, that's insane. Uh, it's like buying a, a laundromat for $100,000 and the, the laundromat business produces a net income after all expenses have been paid of $50,000 a year. So you have a two-year payback and then the business account of the laundromat also has $120,000 sitting in it. So you, you pay 100, you get 120 back, and then you get a, a two-year payback relative to the price. Uh, that's the situation. And I, um, so I was running screens, and I was, I, I was getting feedback of places like Russia. Uh, I was starting to get you know, feed uh, results uh, for places like China. And uh, I, I noticed that it, it was the emerging market countries that, um, that were not as much like, let's say, allied countries of, of the Western developed countries that had cheaper equity markets. And so I spent more and more time there. And I began to, to find net-net situations as an example, a shipping services company. I, the situation still exists today. Anybody can go look it up. Costco Shipping, uh, Hong, uh, Costco Shipping International Hong Kong. And uh, I think their, their, uh, their, their symbol is uh, uh, 0515.hk. You probably know that one. Uh, but so that's a situation where they sell at a, at a discount to the net cash on hand. The discount got to as great as about 30 to 40% discount to net cash. This was some months ago in 2020. But on top of that, they have an income producing business that for uh, a decade plus has been paying consistent steady dividends. You know, they, it's like a shipping services company. They, 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 they paint and uh, wash, uh, um, shipping freights with the shipping containers, sell insurance, parts, repairs, all that kind of stuff. So I was coming across situations like that. And then what I started to notice uh, after the Trump presidency in the U.S. was that he started uh, intensifying the trade war language with China going into 2017. Um, I was I was very... Uh, interested in the country. So I went to go visit it. And I went to go visit some, you know, publicly listed companies that were there too. And I had a spectacular experience. What an amazing country, I have to say. And, um, but what I noticed was that in, in, in these valuations that I was coming across, I was coming across big, mature, blue chip style companies. Uh, like, if you could imagine, like uh, the McDonald's, the General Electric, the Goldman Sachs of the West, uh, pardon me, of the West or of the U.S., but the equivalent companies in their country, we'll call them red chips. I guess to use one of the Jim Rogers, you know, term. I noticed that they were selling at uh, uh, price to book ratios of 0 0.5, 0 0.6, 0 0.7, uh, PE ratios of uh, 7, 8, 9, 10. And I thought, okay, well, that's okay. But these Russian companies are selling for two and a half times earnings, three times earnings. When you look at something like Gazprom, just uh, extraordinary. Um, but I was watching the situation from 18 into 19. So it started with the trade war. The trade war language got really, really tough. And then in 2019, the fall of 2019, that was when the COVID situation started coming out, as our viewers know here, uh, with China. And then their stocks got pounded again from October into January. Uh, they just 
maybe pounded is not the right word, but they just kept drifting lower. So this was a solid four years of continuously lower drifting prices. And then when we had March of 2020, um, their shares also plunged. Uh, coming out of the 2020, the March 2020 bottom, the U.S. market and Western markets surged. The U.S. market, of course, has moved up, I think, uh, maybe the most of uh, all the countries. But um, these Chinese companies and uh, the Russian companies, to an extent, they recovered a bit. But you know, now over the last, uh, between October and November, when they last made the bottom, the, uh, their energy shares, they're, they're now getting back to where it looks like they may retest uh, the October-November uh, lows. And the October-November the October, lows for many of these Chinese stocks were lower than the March 2020 lows. And so the kinds of stocks I'm talking about are banks, uh, oil, energy companies, oil and energy service companies, big engineering companies, the state-owned entities in particular, um, uh, textile companies. Um, so that's what I'm looking at today. Uh, I've got big lists of companies where you know I can put together a portfolio of 30 to 40 of the strongest companies within a particular region, let's say Russia, China, or parts of Africa, and the average price-to-earning ratio across a portfolio could be four. The dividend yield between six to eight percent, and the price of price to book, uh, 0.25 to 0.6, 0.7. So uh, I know that that's a little bit of a walk away from natural resource exploration, development stage project investing, but uh, that's where studying the work of you know, Ben Graham and some of the other value investors has led me. Uh, so I, I hope that answers the long-winded way to answer your last question. Hey, I think um, Brian's got a really exciting question for you coming up, but uh, I just want to ask you a sort of really broad question here. You talk a lot about value, price to book, dividend, dividend yields. You know, the ideal situation is where you have a sort of net net or high cash to market or like one to one cash to market cap ratio. And then you get value, growth and a dividend. That's like the holy trinity. So I was just really wondering, do you think it's everyone talks about the value uh, growth dichotomy? The ideal situation is you find a value company that turns into a growth company and it's sort of like a post hoc explanation of what happened when really what you're doing is looking at screens or stock screeners, you're, you're looking for certain gaps or, or arbitrage opportunities. I think, I think what investors would really want to know is sort of, is value growth a false dichotomy or, or by that, by that do I mean like if you find a really good value company, it could then be considered a growth company once the market wakes up to it. You know, growth companies are generally considered all the lines going up, it's a growing company. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a bit about that and provide a bit of context for investors. Yeah, Lachlan, that's such a good question because it's such a, uh, it's a gray area and the area, it moves and it, it, it means different things to different people because, uh, and this is a wonderful discussion of what is investing and what is speculating and what is an investor and what is a speculator. And it means different things to different people and that's okay. Um, and so I, I think it's up to each individual person to explore those two terms and decide on a meeting that 
is suitable for them. And one of the my favorite places to go to explore those two terms a little bit, um, there's, I'm sure there's some work on it in the intelligent investor, but I can't quote any specific passages today. But in uh, Ben Graham's security analysis, uh-huh. um, uh, let me see here. In chapter uh, four, distinctions between investment and speculation. And I can't believe you've got this book handy. Yeah. uh, Discrepancies between price and value. That's chapter L uh, at the end, at the end of the book. Uh, But if you were just to explore, I mean, this, this book is kind of difficult to get through, especially for um, uh, a layman who's, you know, new to the material, but just those two chapters are very easy to read. And if someone starts there, it's extremely helpful, I think, because, um, so to your question, well, I'm reminded of that situation of seeing Ivanhoe Mines back in 2015. Uh, is it a growth company? Uh, is it a value situation? Uh, I think it depends on how you were to look at it at the time. And the way that I've concluded on looking at, at, at certain things is, uh, or looking on this thing is um, that most businesses have speculative upside there are things that happen. Uh, the um, the ebb and flow of any marketplace causes some businesses to expand, contract, go through uh, fat times, go through lean times, and you know the lean times your competition gets run over and they disappear, and then you have the fat times return, and then you whatever business they're in gets to enjoy the speculative upside that is available to them because their competitors are out of business. So uh, I have thought about this and I thought it's extremely difficult. It's like this patience trying exercise for a person to want to do, but that is to look at situations and say, well, you know, this business may have a lot of growth upside or I would call it speculative upside. Let me see if I can buy it at a value style valuation and get the growth for free or get the speculative upside for free. And that's exactly what a person was doing by buying uh, Ivanhoe at a discount to net cash is they're getting all the speculative upside, which is um, uh, copper pricing, rebounding in the copper market, as well as uh, zinc and uh, platinum and palladium. Uh, They were getting exploration upside for free. Um, And so, uh, and I've seen that in lots of other situations. Uh, another one was uh, Africa Oil. That one, I, I think, is still extremely attractive from a valuation standpoint, but it's not a net-net uh, situation today as it was in uh, 2017 when I started getting involved with it. Uh, you, you had the situation where you were buying the company at a cash valuation, and you are getting uh, their exposure to this oil deposit that had estimated somewhere between 750 to 1 billion barrels of oil in the ground, you're getting exposure to that for free. So you are getting the speculative, the growth aspect of it. Uh, if exploration would cause the deposit to grow, that I suppose that would be growth. You are getting that aspect of it for free, as well as uh, uh, commodity price recovery in terms of if the price of oil or other energy products were to sharply recover, you would you'd get that part of it for free. So but that's such a good question that that I hopefully 
answer it? Oh no, that that makes perfect sense. It's about it's about getting uh, that speculative upside for basically for freight. Um, you know, and if you can manage that, you're in the sweet yeah. spot as an investor. Yeah, it's one way to do it, but those situations don't come around every day. Or you have to be looking in sort of these disparate areas that not too many other people are looking in or don't want to look at kind of thing. And that's where people like Brian come in. <laughs> yeah, that to a certain extent, um, I can try and do that. But uh, to call it is right. Um, it is not so easy to find um, companies that are in net-net situations, um, even with um, Australian-listed speculative uh, explorer stocks, because um, I think people have warmed up to the idea that there is a gold rally and they want to position themselves in it uh, on the AS ASX. And I, uh, I was going back to um, what Takoa was saying in that there are all these opportunities in China and Russia uh, because a lot of these companies are trading about 50 cents to the dollar in price to um, book value ratio. Um, I remember I, I was teaching um, international students um, in uh, a couple of years ago, and I saw some of them actually playing with the stock markets while while in class. And I don't mind them doing it as long as they do their work. So I asked one of them, do you actually do much fundamental um, analysis uh, as in looking at the financial statements? And one of them smiled in a really, it, it was a really right type of smile and it goes, there are two sets of accounts in China, in Chinese companies. There's the ones that come publicly and they're the ones that they actually have. And um, I kind of tapped myself, uh, tapped my nose and I was going, okay, I'm not sure though uh, from your experience, Nicole, is, is that the case? Um, do, you, do, you, do you think that there may be potentially two sets of accounts uh, that are out there? Oh, sure. Yes, that's absolutely the case. And there's no way to know. Um, gosh, you know, uh, international investor Mark Mobius was uh, once asked in an interview how he were to um, keep tabs on untrustworthy managements, especially uh, in emerging markets, uh, such as uh, I think what was uh, Turkey, what was being asked of him at the time. And he said, well, you know, um, if a management team wants to steal from you, they can find a way to steal and keep it completely secret. Uh, so it's a, a very difficult thing to, um, uh, to get a, a handle on and discovering who or the character of uh, any one person or, or one specific team, unless somebody has a, a really talented gift of being able to spot that right away, Sometimes it could take years to do that, uh, you know, to being able to uncover, um, demystify those those frauds. And so that's not an area that I have or I think I really want to develop any skill in just because it, it seems like such a difficult thing to do. But, uh, you know, I came across a passage at one time, I believe, in reading Graham's work where uh, he pointed that out. That uh, he pointed out that that may be a, a bit of a um, more uncommon phenomenon um, for those to occur. But something did strike me, and that to this question is: I think that there is a likelihood that there 
that that there will be a higher probability of fraud occurring in hot markets, uh, ebullient markets, where the share pricing of lots of different companies are just going through the roof because fraudsters are short-term oriented. I don't know of any fraudster who might think, you know, or I wouldn't imagine any fraudster would think to themselves, well, if I work really hard for five or 10 years, and I present a really honest and, and trustworthy picture of myself. On the 11th year, I might be able to dupe somebody uh, out of a few dollars. What about um, Bernie Madoff? Except he didn't, oh, he didn't sure. defraud them for $2. They, that was uh, billions of dollars. I guess that's a different sure. story. Sure, yeah. But one thing that, that I've noticed is that these value situations that we've been talking about so far, they usually occur in the context of either extremely sharp uh, declines in markets or extremely protracted declines in markets where a market's been declining for, in the case of Russia, China, and these other African markets that I've been looking at, they've been continuously declining since 2007. They had a little bit of a recovery from the 08 to 09 uh, pardon me, the 09 bounce coming out of the financial crash, but they just resume their downward decline. So they've been continuously declining for uh, 14 years. And I think that you'd have a higher likelihood to encounter teams that would have funny business going on in hotter markets, say Western developed, maybe US markets, than you would in some of those other markets that have had continuous 10 to 15 year uh, bear markets. because. So many companies are are just squeezed out, and people throw in the towel, and they want to go to where "quote unquote" the money is. I hope that makes sense. Well, everyone wants to get in before the market gets hot. I think Brian has one last question, uh, probably about gold and whether there's a value opportunity here before it gets hot again. So, Brian, uh, go ahead. So, Takoa, there are a lot of people who jump into speculative mining stocks because they think this is the quick way to get rich. But what would you advise them to do to increase their chance of success? Well, uh, I would think about exploring the terms speculator and investor and speculating and investing. Uh, the best place to do that would be starting with the intelligent investor, reading that book, and then looking for those two passages that we mentioned in security analysis, um, really giving that thought. And uh, also, if they're going to enter, uh, enter the natural resources space, I'm not sure if we have time for it today, but um, there is this um, concept that they could think about called the four asset classes of mining, where they can decide what uh, segment of the natural resource space they want to um, specialize in uh, or to um, uh, uh, cut their teeth in. Uh, so that could be a major producer, a junior producer, a junior development stage company, or a junior exploration uh, stage company. And each of these four uh, groups have uh, subcategories to them. And there's lots to learn about each one of them. Uh, so I would suggest uh, thinking about that and 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 uh, following your work, Brian, um, uh, to learn as much as possible and maybe I don't 
don't want to suggest too much time, but my first thought is to spend a couple of years learning about this stuff and learning as much as you can and maybe experimenting with small, very small amounts of money uh, before moving on to more substantial amounts. And um, I would also say that every 10 years, we get a very nice fair market in the natural resource during the years that I've been observing it. So uh, that's, that's what I would suggest to somebody that's new and, and wants to learn more. Hey, just on that theme to COA, uh, I've got one final punchline question for you, and that is, what do you love the most about your work? I, th I think it's education based on what you've, you've just uh, laid out for us. I think there was a lot of detail there, but um, how do you have fun in your work? Well, getting something for free uh, oh, yeah. is fun. Everyone loves that. Yeah, yes. And sharing it is fun, being able to talk about it. Um, but it's just it's just finding a nice bargain. And it, it gives me, uh, I, I enjoy the same feeling as, um, as if I had gone to a yard sale or to, or, to, or to some store and having been the only person to notice that there's a little clearance section hidden in the back yeah. uh, with goods that are between 70 to 90% off that the store owner has to get rid of that day and you can make a little offer and take the whole thing home. <laughs> Um, you know, there, there are situations like that in the market. And, uh, so that, uh, I think is where I get the most fun after. Hey, I think everyone can relate to that, that sort of experience and feeling. So, um, I, at the end here, I just really want to thank you so much for your time today, Dakoa. uh, people watching and listening would have learned a heap and, uh, I had a lot of fun. Uh, do you have any thoughts, Brian? Um, Dakoa, what, what you were saying about, um, how, uh, new new speculators need, need to actually do a couple of years and um, study it. That's actually really true. Um, and your your website back then, Bull Market Thinking, actually allowed me to uh, remind myself that success doesn't come quickly and uh, you really have to be patient about it and um, stick to your guns. So I really appreciate the time you've um, given to us uh, for today. And I'm sure um, the viewers would definitely We'd love to have you come back as there was um, a few things that you talked about which you said we couldn't we didn't have time to um, get into details so we could probably do that in a future interview so thank you very much Dakota and um, I hope you do enjoy your evening as we've taken a bit of it out uh, uh, for this interview my appreciations on behalf of the viewers hey, it's my pleasure thank you very much for the opportunity Brian to speak with you and uh, you as well Lachlan thank you and uh, to the to the viewers uh, subscribe and uh, get uh, all of Brian's work. And if he, if you watching, if you have any ideas or questions or things that, that you, that you want to ask, send Brian an email and, you know, he and I will uh, find a way to get the information to you. So thank you. Wow. That was a great chat. We just had with Tacoa da Silva. I was really curious as to what you thought of that chat, Brian. Lucky, I thought um, Tacoa spoke at length on uh, several issues, which would, I would probably think that you'll be subscriber content, but he didn't, I, I won't say he gave things away that um, he shouldn't. And uh, I'd love to have him back uh, to talk in more detail about other issues that uh, we didn't have time to cover. Well, I think anyone who's serious about gold and commodities, uh, Takoa and Brian are great guides here. So I'd really encourage people to check out what they do. As always, like, subscribe, Get in touch. We'd love to hear from you.